Hello and welcome to Bad Gays, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people in history. My name's Hugh Lemmy. I'm a writer and author. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwulist Museum in Berlin. And currently nuzzling me is our silent third co-host, Fauno the Cat. Hello, Fauno. Hello, Fauno. So, uh, yeah, thanks for bearing with us. Um, we hope you enjoyed our um, uh, special over the over the break on uh, Simeon Solomon. And Sasha Schneider. And uh, hope that those of you who've been supporting us on Patreon uh, or subscribed on Apple Podcasts have enjoyed our new monthly show, Extra Bad Gays. And um, if you want more of us in your life and if you want a monthly show that comes whether we're in the middle of releasing a season or not, uh, you can visit patreon.com slash badgayspod or write in Apple Podcasts, uh, click subscribe, uh, and that support really does help us make the show. Uh, so thank you so much for uh, doing that, those of you who have, and we hope you enjoy it. This month, we're going to be talking about the plan to create a new fire island somewhere in the Mediterranean. <laughs> um, and the good news is that they have discount offers, Hugh, for influencers. And gay content creators, so we can actually get our discounted Bad Gays Manor <laughs> in the new Fire Island uh, somewhere on uh, in the Chlamydia Circus that they <laughs> locate this place in. Well, you're mocking it, but this is going to give us another six seasons of material, so we should be supporting it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah, the um, the the bad gays extra has or extra bad gays has been uh, really fun to do. I think last last uh, last month we did a whole series on. Uh, good and bad gay Christmas movies. So that's the sort of stuff we're talking about, but also more serious, uh, uh, complex issues as well. So yeah, if you uh, want to support the podcast and get a little, little bit extra in your inbox, please do uh, go over there and uh, subscribe to our Patreon or this on Apple Podcasts. Please do. So Ben, without further ado, season seven, episode one, who's today's bad gay? Well, you're going to like this one. So we all know the meme. Emily Blunt is gossiping with her coworker about Anne Hathaway, who is their impossibly unstylish and impossibly fat new coworker, <laughs> some pissy journalist who thinks she's too good for her job, the internship at Runway Magazine that every girl in New York would kill for. Then, as the music swells, Anne strides around the corner in her freshly cut, extremely 2006 vintage bangs, her lumpy cerulean sweater a thing of the past. She's wearing an oversized black tweed jacket with white trim and, infamously, a pair of thigh-high black leather boots. <laughs> Stunned, Emily asks the question, Are you wearing the... Anne. The Chanel boots? Yeah, I am. <laughs> the cultural symbol of makeover, a universal one in other words, was a pair of Chanel boots. That signaled arrival in a top tier of dressing. The whole outfit, hair, and look had changed. But the way that change was expressed, the way it could be emblematized in three words, was the Chanel boots. Now, the name that immediately comes to mind when we see the phrase the Chanel boots is, of course, Coco Chanel, the French-style icon and Nazi agent. Her chic suits undid the corset silhouette with elegant garments in which the new woman of the 1920s, or at least the very richest of her cousins, could move freely. Later, she was engaged by the SS to try to convince her dear friend Winston Churchill to end the war in 1943. After the war, she was prevented from being officially charged as a collaborator due to the intervention of her dear friend Winston Churchill. Oh, God, didn't know that. But of course, by 2006, Coco was long dead. The lead designer of the House of Chanel had been since 1982 a different person. 
someone as responsible for the admitted chicness of the thigh-high leather boots, as for the absurd idea promoted by all of the characters in the film that Anne Hathaway is at any moment in the movie anything even closely resembling fat. <laughs> that man was named Karl Lagerfeld, and he's the subject of today's episode. Excellent. I've been waiting for this. A white-haired, powdered, starch-cuffed petty dictator who ruled over his expanding businesses with an iron fist, stopping every once in a while to make a misogynist or racist public comment, Lagerfeld was one of the most influential figures in the fashion industry as it shifted into late capitalist hyperdrive. In our episode on Andrew Cunanan, we quoted a lot from the incredible Gary Indiana book, Three Month Fever, and I want to turn uh, for a moment to an essay that Indiana quotes in that book. The essay is by Daniel Harris, and it's called The Electronic Funeral, Mourning Versace. Here he's writing about the ways that people were talking about Versace and his funeral and his death on like early internet forums. Uh -huh. Quote, it is not just Versace who's disguised as an artist, a dream weaver, a storyteller through fabric who was to fashion what Michelangelo was to art, but capitalism itself, which is characterized through the tributes not as the money-grubbing enterprise of corporate price gougers, but as a vast philanthropic organization, an altruistic cultural institution that bequeaths, not sells, beauty and elegance to our aesthetically impoverished society. The merchandise is almost invariably referred to as a legacy, handed down to us by a selfless humanitarian who, quote, gave a lot to his community, end quote, and who did not, quote, endow the world with his visional greatness, unquote, out of sordid profit motives, but for the pure, high-minded, quote, passion of designing such wonderful clothes that were showy but will always be classic in a sense, end quote. Buying clothes is recharacterized in the Versace tribute as an act of collecting artworks handcrafted by a beneficent genius who, quote, graced us with his beauteous ogres, end quote. That's a good, yeah, a really good description of like some aspects of the fashion industry. Although so, not all. Not all, no. But similarly, Lagerfeld, after his death in 2019, was memorialized as an artist, a genius. He was given a 2023 solo exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which broke records. The quote from the exhibition description here, The theoretical framework for the exhibition is inspired by 18th century British artist William Hogarth's concept of the line of beauty, an S-shaped line that represents liveliness and movement, in contrast to a straight line, which connotes stillness, activity, and even death. Lagerfeld, however, was much too magnanimous to maintain such aesthetic judgments. For him, the serpentine and the straight line were both beautiful and exciting, engaging his imagination in equal measure. What a load of horseshit. <laughs> to give Vanessa Friedman of the New York Times some credit, she was a bit more on the nose. Quote, his contribution to fashion was not in creating a new silhouette, as designers like Balenciaga Dior and Chanel herself did. Rather, he created a new kind of designer, the shapeshifter. That is to say, he was the creative force who lands at the top of a heritage brand and reinvents it by identifying its sartorial semiology and then pulls it into the present with a healthy dose of disrespect and a dollop of pop culture. In other words, a regurgitator. In other words, someone whose relevance to Chanel was less a way of dressing than, as Friedman puts it succinctly a couple paragraphs down, quote, revenues of more than $4 billion a year. Right. So I want to start our tour through Lagerfeld's life with some of what his obituaries politely called controversial comments. <laughs> quote, no one wants to see curvy women. Quote, if you don't want your pants pulled about, don't become a model. Join a nunnery. There'll always be a place for you in the convent. On Me Too, quote, I'm fed up with it. What shocks me the most in all this are the starlets who have taken 20 years to remember what happened. 
Quote, you've got fat mothers with their bags of chips sitting in front of the television and saying that thin models are ugly. Quote, one cannot, even if there are decades between them, kill millions of Jews so you can bring millions of their worst enemies in their place. I know someone in Germany who took a young Syrian, and after four days, he said, the greatest thing Germany invented was the Holocaust. Holy shit. Adele, quote, a little too fat, but then he clarified and he said that he actually meant it about Lana Del Rey. Um, Heidi Klum, quote, too heavy. The Middleton sisters, quote, Kate has a nice silhouette. I like that kind of woman. I like romantic beauties. On the other hand, the sister struggles. I don't like the sister's face. She could, she should only show her back. Um, quote, the hole in social security is due to all the diseases caught by people who are too fat. Quote, there are less than 1% of anorexic girls, but there are over 30% of girls who are big, big, big overweight. And that's much more dangerous and very bad for the health. What a prick. <laughs> quote, Coco Chanel wasn't ugly enough to be a feminist, end quote. Oh, my God. But she was chic enough to be a Nazi. Um, so these comments, all of which were written up as, like, controversial um, or paired upon, paired alongside some admittedly funny lines like, quote, sweatpants are a sign of defeat. You lost control of your life, so you bought some sweatpants. <laughs> <laughs> Those comments are nothing more or less than the banal, empty-headed statements um, of a person who neatly reflected the prejudices of a tiny and ever self-enriching global elite. The statements of a man who once said, quote, my only ambition in life is to wear size 28 jeans. Jesus Christ. So Karl Lagerfeld was born, according to Karl Lagerfeld, in 1938 to a Swede named Otto Ludwig Lagerfeld and a woman named Elizabeth of Germany. And later he went uh, in life, he went so far as to actually sue a fashion writer for publishing a book that suggested otherwise um, before eventually admitting that he was born in 1933, um, that his father was German and that his mother was Elizabeth of Germany in the same way that I'm Ben of Massachusetts or you're Hugh of Cumbria, which is to say that that is where we're from, but you wouldn't go around calling us that. <laughs> Shaving some years off his age and seeming less German were, according to a new biography by William Middleton called Paradise Now, uh, part of a calculated project of distancing himself from the horrors of the Third Reich. He didn't want his true birth year, 1933, to tie him to the rise of Hitler to power. And being born in 1938 would have made him a very young child, a child living sort of before memory during the years of dictatorship in the Holocaust. Yeah. Rather than a teenager. Right. His father was an evaporated milk tycoon, and his mother was a lingerie saleswoman from Berlin. The family moved to the country when the war began. Uh, quote, there was food all the time, end quote, he told the New Yorker's John Colapinto. Quote, the farmers were not poor people with three cows. I felt loved and protected by my parents in a time like the 40s when it was not easy to have a protected life. Now, one reason why the life may have been protected was that his father was a member of the Nazi party. Ah, there you go. Yeah. Um, in October 2017, uh, Lagerfeld contributed one of his regular cartoons to the weekly magazine of the conservative Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung newspaper. The cartoon depicted Hitler standing behind Angela Merkel and saying, quote, thank you very much for inadvertently allowing my descendants to be represented in parliament. Um, now, he wasn't criticizing their Merkel's embrace of austerity. He wasn't criticizing her choice of Hans-Georg Maassen, who has encouraged the center-right to make coalitions with the far-right and is currently being expelled from the center-right party due to speech from anti-Semitic milieus. 
Um, this man was appointed by Merkel to lead the federal office for the protection of the Constitution. Uh, no, he was criticizing her decision to allow in Syrian refugees. Right. So Carl was an artistic child. He was constantly sketching and he was devoted to his mother. His mother, on the other hand, constantly criticized him. So he never smoked in his life because she told him that he had ugly hands and cigarettes would make people look at his ugly hands. Well, um, she told him that he told boring stories. And so for his whole life, he spoke in this sort of super rapid fire patter. Uh -huh. The New Yorker quotes him as saying, quote, I was too exotic for where I was. I hated the other co company of other children. I wanted to be a grown up person to be taken seriously. I hated the idea of childhood. I thought it was a moment of endless stupidity. As a child, he read books by Paul Poiret, the fashion historian, and he dressed very nattily. There's a photograph that I saw in uh, Women's Wear Daily, which shows him and his school class in Germany in 1947. So you've got a bunch of 14-year-old boys, uh, and they're all sitting there wearing like rumpled socks and sort of sweaters, and they have their knees open. And Carl's in the middle of the front row with slicked black hair, a double-breasted black jacket, and his legs are daintily <laughs> crossed at the knee, and he's doing the like, little wrist thing. The little wrist thing. You know the little wrist yeah. thing. Anna's doing it in front of me right now. It's very cute. Um, and late 1940s Germany was just not a great place to be a little faggot, right? You know? Yeah. You can never be sure how much individual figures knew about broader trends, especially in the cloud of confusion and denial that followed the end of the Second World War. But it's not unreasonable to assume that Lagerfeld might have been aware that gay men had been in the camps. Mm -hmm. And when the center-right CDU took over after elections in West Germany and formed a cabinet filled with people whose activities during the war are best described with a, well, never mind, um, a lot of those gay men were actually sent back to prison. Right, yeah. The time they had spent in the camps was not considered regular prison service. And so if you had done four years in a concentration camp and your sentence was five years, you had to start again from the beginning in jail, jail. That's insane. Yeah. Actually, between uh, 1947 and 1969, 100,000 additional men were sent to prison in West Germany for sodomy. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, to be an effeminate boy fascinated with fashion and sort of proudly standing out in this way could not have been easy, right? And actually, the um, harsher Nazi version of the sodomy law introduced in the mid-1930s remained on the books in West Germany until 1968. That's paragraph 175. That's paragraph 175. So Lagerfeld himself remembers his father saying after the war that Germany was dead. So in, the, in his late teens, uh, Karl moved to Paris. And I think it, this kind of, uh, you know, coming of age and the ashes or in the rubble, right, um, influenced this sense that he had throughout his life. His biographer, William Middleton, is quoted as saying, that's what Carl was about, always completely focused on the present. And the title of the book, um, Paradise Now, comes from a quote that Lagerfeld once gave during an interview with a French journalist. He said, I don't care about posterity. I just don't care. It won't do anything for me. It's today that counts. Paradise Now. Well, that's a, yeah, that's a philosophy. So at the age of 21, Lagerfeld entered a design competition, which was sponsored by the International Wool Secretariat. <laughs> And he won in the coat competition. And this turned out to be a rather auspicious competition to enter because in the cocktail dress uh, category, the winner was a man named Yves Saint Laurent. 
with whom Lagerfeld would remain friends until they had a big falling out in the 70s. And of course, Yves Saint Laurent goes on to become maybe one of the last big figures who's a fashion designer in that kind of old school Christian Dior, Coco Chanel, Cristobal Balenciaga artisan way, um, as opposed to this new way that Lagerfeld kind of invents. And so he immediately gets, because of this, his first job in the industry. He's working at the House of Balmain. And at this time, um, high fashion clothes were shown in hand-sewn couture collections, which had to be recreated after the show in various places. So, for example, Jackie Kennedy's famous pink Chanel suit was not made in France. It was made in New York from patterns that were sent to New York so that the licensed Chanel maker there could make the suit to measure for her. Okay. Right. Um, And so he had to then basically draw many, many copies of the collections after the show such that patterns could be produced and reproduced. And this is in an age before photocopiers. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's an extremely, obviously, arduous job. You have to sort of quickly draw many, many copies of each look, the silhouette, the details of the embroidery, all of the embellishments. And I guess he did this very well. Um, He eventually rose quite quickly. He became the top assistant. And then he left to become the lead designer at the smaller house of Patou. This was the first of many instances where he would take over and successfully run an existing brand. Lagerfeld is probably the first fashion designer to become a household name without his own line being the place where he did the work for which he is best known. There was a house of Lagerfeld, but that's not why any of us know who he was. Now, at this time, there's a major change going on in the fashion industry. As the 1950s turned to the 60s, evolving social attitudes and prosperity helped create a youth culture. As hemlines began to rise and haircuts began to shorten, and as fashion especially began to be influenced by musical subcultures, the energy started to move. The big design action had always been in these hand-sewn couture collections. And by hand-sewn, I mean literally hand-sewn. Couture collection is created by people using nothing more high-tech than a needle and thread, not even a sewing machine. And the garments are made to measure for the individual models. Is that still the case? If you see if something is actually couture, Mm -hmm. then yes, that is the case. Wow. And so if you order a look, if you purchase a look, that look is then recreated, specifically made to measure for you. There's no sizes. Okay. Um, nowadays, only the wives of oligarchs or actresses on their way to the Oscars will actually wear clothes that are made like this. Yeah. And even people who wear extremely expensive designer clothing wear what is called ready-to-wear clothing that is mass-produced to specific sizes. Prêt-à-porter. Exactly. So in the United States, ready-to-wear garments dominated the market by the 1950s. By 1951, 90% of Americans were wearing ready-to-wear um, in France and European high society, um, not just in high society, but in France in the early 1950s, a third of people were still wearing made-to-measure clothes. And this was also the low end of the market, right? This is also people who were making their clothes at home. But in high society at that time, you did not want to be wearing ready-made yeah. garments. You were wearing couture. And Lagerfeld and Yves Saint Laurent were the two pioneers of high fashion taking ready-to-wear clothes seriously. Saint Laurent was the first designer to launch a ready-to-wear collection under his own name, and he opened Rive Gauche, which was his first ready-to-wear boutique, in 1966. Now, these designs were still obviously quite expensive and out of the reach of most consumers, but it 
enabled several accelerating changes in the fashion industry. The first was that high fashion was being influenced from below rather than the other way around. And this has always, of course, happened to some extent, right? Coco Chanel's little black dress wouldn't have existed without the service uniforms being worn by working class women decades. But now the entire means of production was shifting towards the mass market. And what this did was on the corporate side, hugely increased how much money you could make doing this. Couture clothes are eye-wateringly expensive, and they always have been, but they don't actually make that much profit for the house. Because if you think about the investment involved in hand-making, made-to-measure clothing, even at a very high price point, your profit margins aren't that high. Because the labor involved must be Exactly, just because incredible. you're making, I mean, sewing a whole dress, cutting the patterns, cutting the fabric, doing the edges, doing all the hem work by hand. And designing it for such a small run. Exactly. Like, yeah. But in ready-to-wear, even though oftentimes if you're in a higher-end store, the fabrics are nicer, the construction is of better quality, and the details are more intricate, there's just a way smaller difference in production cost between a high and low end garment. But the high end garment can still attract a much, much higher price because of trend and brand. Right? And so, at its extreme, this approach gets to the place where major fashion labels use diffusion lines like jeans, perfume, skincare, sunglasses to hugely increase their profits, right? Very, very, very few people in the world, like a handful of people, will actually go buy a $30,000 Dior Couture gown. Yeah, right. Somewhat more people will go buy a $2,000 Dior dress. Another order of magnitude more people will go buy $300 Dior sunglasses. And then a whole lot of people will go buy a $100 Dior perfume. Yeah. From the designer's perspective... Ready-to-wear meant that it was much easier for fashion to follow changing trends, right? Made-to-measure clothing for wealthy women was designed to last several seasons, right? You would have probably a few looks if you were the kind of society person who went around doing this that were kind of new every year. But, you know, if you bought a couture suit, right, you're looking for something that's basically going to last you a while, that's going to work in a bunch of different situations, that's not going to be sort of too, too much following any given trend. And because of this, Lagerfeld uh, started getting bored with couture. He called it, quote, very dowdy and very bourgeois, and it was just not trendy, end quote. <sighs> okay. I mean, that's the thing, right, is it starts one way, which is like, okay, how do we make this profitable? So, so okay, we're going to launch this ready-to-wear line, or then we're going to launch these sort of extras. But then you realize, oh, actually, this is where all the profit is, so we should actually just run the couture line almost as like um, – Last leader. Yeah, and the machine that makes the desire which causes other people to buy it. And then there comes a point where you're looking at it and you're like, well, actually, I'm more interested in all these other people who are wanting to buy into that desire um, rather than the rich people who right. are creating it in that way. So but then, that's putting it, that's, that's getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. We're not there yet. I okay. mean, Lager, what Lagerfeld is interested in is the kind of as the 60s begin before, I mean, he, I think he, he, he sees that this is what's coming. Um, but from a design perspective, what he's interested in is the ability to kind of integrate youth cultures and the okay. 60s into high fashion, right? And that's also what Saint Laurent is doing. So Lagerfeld begins to design freelance for several companies. And in 1964, he becomes head designer at the brand Chloe, where he stays until 1983. And in 1965, he added the Italian house of Fendi to his job list, 
where he designed until his death in 2019. So 1965 to 2019. Wow. And once again, his work consisted of taking over these kinds of moribund brands and pulling them into the contemporary age. So when he arrived, Fendi was an upscale fur and leather maker. They made bags, they made furs, they made wallets. And these were luxury items, but it was a small family business in Rome. Right? They're selling fur coats and wallets to individual buyers. And Lagerfeld transformed it into a brand. He designed a logo, two interlocking Fs. He put that logo on everything, and he started to really radically transform the fur collections. Instead of just raising and lowering the hems and sleeves of coats, he started using formerly low-class pelts like mole and rabbit and squirrel, Hmm. um, and doing all kinds of work with the fur, cutting it, shaving it, weaving it, patchworking it. And so something that had been a staid, high-class product became trendier, became more responsive to youth culture. It became more globalized. It became more adapted to a world of accelerating media. And it also became something where everyone knew if you had the newest and the latest season or not. Yeah. And that led to higher sales. And that was the Lagerfeld formula. And it was wildly successful. So at this point in his career, Lagerfeld starts getting the kind of attention that was usually only attracted by couturiers who had come up with some kind of signature style. When we think of famous designers before Lagerfeld, we think of a signature look. For Coco Chanel, we think of the tweed suit and the short black dress. Christian Dior, the new look, sort of highly corseted with a big, big Mm -hmm. skirt. For Balenciaga, bubble hemlines and the cocoon coat. And when you look at Lagerfeld's career, you can't see any signature look or style or silhouette. I mean, he likes white and black, but it's not, you know. A A 1976, rather, New York Times profile quoted him as saying, quote, I am interested in what I am doing and what I will do, not what I have done. If dresses are going to be tighter, then I will have to have more rehearsals. Snugger clothes mean the mannequins who show them will have to be fitted more precisely, end quote. Um, and to go on uh, further in the article, it wrote, it said, quote, a lot of his experimentation is in the area of finding ways to make clothes fit a great many different figures without the luxury of two or three fittings. Okay. So he said, quote, when people ask me what I do, designer seems inadequate. I tell them I'm in the fashion business, but that's what happens with ready to wear. You become an enterprise. You can't intellectualize it. You read all the newspapers. You get involved with all kinds of people. You try to observe everything and then forget it. You go on instinct. If what you produce is right for the moment, if it's what people want and feel comfortable with, then it's a success. If not, you go back and try again. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, he, he is like very much market based, and he's like focused on profitability and as well as any sort of design concern. Is it selling? Yeah. So by 1977, he'd moved into a grand house, one of these sort of Parisian grand hotel on the Rue de l'Université in Paris, and he fitted out many of the rooms with candles and slept in a canopy bed that was decorated with ostrich feathers and. The rest of his bedroom set was the lacquer furniture that had belonged to Madame de Pompadour, the infamous mistress of French kings. Okay, I'm into that. His social life was commented on, but he never seemed to indulge much himself in drugs and alcohol, nor in many affairs. But the one great love of his life seems to have been Jacques de Bachet. And uh, we have here, I think, what may be the most evil, evil twink that I have come across <laughs> in the entire uh, history of this podcast. Ben's just preparing to find me a photo. I am finding a photo to show to Hugh um, because you need to see this. <laughs> wow. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's... Um, 
French I mean, is what that is. That's that's French. Yeah, he could be he could be about to uh, I don't know defraud you of your life savings, or he could be about to slit your throat in a back alley somewhere. That photo or... is very Alain Delon, Purple Noon. Yeah. And then I think as the 70s went on and the lifestyle started taking more of a toll, uh, it went in a sleazier but extre- still extremely uh, evil twink kind of a direction. Um, here's another one. Oh, he, he's kind of hot there, actually. He's very hot. And this, like, Sailor Boy outfit. Or uh, or here. The little mustache is really good. You know, I, I get it. I get it. Okay, so here's the life story of Jacques de Bachet. Revealing too much about my type there. So he's born in 1951 in Saigon. And uh, his... I'm going to let you swallow your water here before I tell you this. (laughs) When you go on his Wikipedia page, his listed job descriptions are dandy and socialite. (laughs) What's the distinction in someone's mind there? So he was the son of a shell executive. And um, he seduced one of his high school teachers. And that's when he realized that his beauty was capable of changing his life. His biographer, Maria Tavi, uh, is quoted as describing him as someone who, quote, left no traces, who did nothing with his life, and who built nothing. When he realized that he had an upper hand over others, he saw an opportunity, and he knew that things would always work out for him thanks to his personality and beauty, end quote. Yeah, that's a type. So he's a dandy. Um, he's very indifferent uh, to the world. Um Atavi says, quote, well, he operated within society. He made sure never to succumb to its obligations. Money, work, and ordinary realities were not among his preoccupations, end quote. Lagerfeld said, quote, Jacques, when he was young, was a devil with Garbo's face. <laughs> he didn't dress like anyone. He was ahead of everyone. He made me laugh more than anyone. He was the opposite of me. He was also impossible and despicable. He was perfect. He sparked incredible cases of jealousy, end quote. Yeah, he's a courtesan. He has some sort of social oh. function. So he's uh, born in Tahiti. He serves in the military, but was quickly sentenced to a month's imprisonment uh, in Tahiti for, quote, provocative behavior, um, and then got a job as a flight attendant for Air France. Okay. And that was how, at 21, he well, met that's Carl a, That's a job. He met Karl Lagerfeld in 1972, quickly quit his job. Okay. Um, and for the next 18 years, the two lived together. Um. Both Atavi and Lagerfeld insist that the two never actually slept together. Okay. And I think Karl Lagerfeld may have been the only person in Paris in the 1970s that Jacques <laughs> de Pache did not have sex with. Um, but does, Lagerfeld, he, does he say why? He does, and I'll, I'll okay. get into it. Um, uh, Lagerfeld paid all the bills. Uh, Atavi said, quote, Karl is not a socialist and has said so many times, but I know very few leftists with that many generosity. <laughs> and so Jacques de Pache was bisexual. And spent most of his time having sex with both men and women. Uh-huh. Um, they had uh, in the house a never-used Harley-Davidson motorcycle just so they could do cocaine off the mirrors. <laughs> Atave was trying to describe his type, and she wrote, quote, The cop, the defrocked priest, the tennis player, the mustachioed actor, the squire from the equestrian club, and the entire fire station, end quote. <laughs> you know what? If we have to have the rich... I much prefer this to the sort of like tech bro, you know, wearing a t-shirt. Okay, and... wait for this one. One time he took the Concorde to New York from Paris to go to the mineshaft to have sex with Foucault. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Great. I mean, yeah, at least he's using it. On October 24th, 1977, he invited 1,500 people to, quote, dress in an absolutely mandatory tragic black outfit, end quote, to come over to his house and watch a fist fucking. (laughs) (laughs) So... Despite Lagerfeld's insistence that the relationship was platonic and that he kept Debachet around as a kind of icon of beauty, right, in whom he had no particular sexual interest, this man ended up causing a major rift in Lagerfeld's personal life and also in the fashion world. No. So um, he ended up seducing Yves Saint Laurent and actually briefly becoming his lover in 1973. Uh, but the problem was Saint Laurent had a long-term partner who was also his business partner, Uh. who was also the money behind his business, which never quite meant any money, um, this French industrialist named Pierre Berger. And Berger was furious, and his reaction ended up splitting Lagerfeld and Saint Laurent as friends. Um, And that also kind of split the social world in Paris at that time in the fashion world. Lagerfeld himself apparently didn't care about the affair, but he was really mad at Berger for breaking his friendship with Yves Saint Laurent. Yeah, some things are more important than love, and that's business. For his part, Debachet said that Lagerfeld's only two loves in his life were Coca-Cola and chocolate cake. <laughs> Coca-Cola. I think actually Coca-Cola. <laughs> he was No, then he became a Diet Coke addict, but we'll talk about it. Um, Debachet died in 1989 of AIDS-related illness. And Lagerfeld... Throughout his life, never went to a funeral. Um, he refused to visit his mother when she was dying. He wouldn't go to his mother's funeral, but he actually organized Debachet's funeral mass. Oh, wow. And Otavi said, quote, when we talked about Jacques Debachet, Karl Lagerfeld cried. He didn't want to leave traces of his love for Jacques. He destroyed all the souvenirs and a lot of documents about him and his own life. He preferred to burn the past rather than to leave the memory to others. He loved history, but not his own. Oh, it's, it's a tragic story already. And for the rest of his life, Lagerfeld never had another significant other. I never fall in love. I am just in love with my job. So during all of this, uh, in 1982, Lagerfeld had taken over his biggest challenge yet, the House of Chanel. Since Coco died, the company had shrunk a lot at that time. It had receded from the top of the fashion world. The perfumes kept it going. Despite friends advising him the company was going nowhere and his career was going to go down with it, he ended up taking the assignment in 1982. And that shift from couture to -to ready-to-wear had turned fashion into a trend-driven, mass-market, image-driven industry built on merchandising, right, built on the power of a brand name to drive the sale of mass-produced products. And Lagerfeld applied this to Chanel. He brought couture back down into this world of youth culture and ready-to-wear fashion that he had kind Mm -hmm. of created. In 1989, um, the fashion writer Holly Brubach wrote a piece about sort of his Chanel, the first seven years of his Chanel in The New Yorker, which credited a lot of the success to the desire of working women at that time to find a uniform that made sense for them in boardrooms the way that the men's suit did. Quote, under Lagerfeld's direction, she wrote, Chanel clothes and accessories have become instantly, sometimes grotesquely recognizable. He was the one who actually designed that double C insignia. Uh um, And he started using that insignia as a fabric pattern and as as branding on just about every item. He wrote, quote, in Lagerfeld's hands, the Chanel style has become not only exciting and whimsical, but also solipsistic. Some people, and I am among them, have accused Lagerfeld of desecrating the Chanel style with sight gags and overkill, with a tarty sex appeal and a crass sensationalism. 
Lagerfeld has made the Chanel style newsworthy again by means of exaggeration. At their most baroque, the clothes he designs in her name are good attention getters. End quote. So she's saying he's tacky. Yes. And once again, we're not hearing about an innovation in silhouette or in shape, but in branding and yeah. the commanding of public attention. And this was combined with Lagerfeld's own highly branded self-image, right? This is a man who goes around wearing ascots and monocles and neck ruffles and has powdered white hair. The Greed is Good 1980s were as much of a part of the resurgence of the Lagerfeld Chanel as high-class women's entrance into the workplace and a need for something to wear there. In a world in which conspicuous consumption was replacing older ideas about grace and elegance, Lagerfeld's splashy and provocative work did not turn off high-end clients the way that it probably would have in the 1950s or 1960s. The vast increase in sales of the Lagerfeld brands through the 90s uh, needs also to be attributed to huge increases in global inequality and the vast quantities of top-end wealth that were created through neoliberal economic policies and the entrance of the Eastern Bloc into global markets. Hmm. If shock therapy in Russia created the largest fall in living standards without a war in recorded human history and paved the way for Putin's project of nationalist expansion, it also created a large market for Chanel handbags. You lose some and you win some. <laughs> Yves Saint Laurent was horrified. He complained to Le Monde, quote, At Chanel they have chains everywhere, strips of leather. I see things that are frightening and sadomasochistic. But sales didn't lie. Over his time at the company, Chanel opened dozens of new boutiques. They started many new fragrances. They licensed their name for the production of watches, for eyeglasses, for sunglasses, jewelry, skincare. Sales soared. This became the model of the industry, right? Brands could be continued a long time after the namesake designer left the building. And the creative director was responsible less for creating clothing to be worn than for creating clothing that served as marketing for the different diffusion products. Yeah. The high-end clothing shows were part of the marketing, right? That's what I was saying before. By 1999, Yves Saint Laurent actually was forced to sell his business to Gucci, which had never made too much money. And the brash young designer, Tom Ford, took over the ready-to-wear lines. And when Saint Laurent retired from even doing the couture in 2002, he cited the pressures of the new kind of commercial pace of the industry. Hmm. Those pressures never seemed to get to Lagerfeld. He churned out a dizzying number of collections, more than 10 a year. Fall, spring, sometimes pre-fall and resort for Fendi, Chanel, and his namesake line, and fall couture and spring couture for Chanel. And he did this by creating for himself a live-work environment of unparalleled narcissism. So Lagerfeld lived in a series of enormous rooms in the center of Paris, which were all huge, highly decorated, mirrored. But every single surface was covered in a completely chaotic pile of paper, CDs, books, and sketchbooks. And once the technology was there, he kept a bunch of iPods around, like dozens, several in each room, so that wherever he was, he could listen to his preferred music while designing. And at the center of this was a room which had his bed and five desks, which is where he often worked. And then he had one room as an exact replica of his childhood bedroom in Germany. Oh, that's really weird. And in all of this was one of the world's largest private libraries. He had 30,000 books. Oh, yeah. I've heard this, that he was a big bibliophile. And he also produced books. Um, he published a lot of things that like other people wouldn't publish, very random projects. He was constantly, constantly, constantly working, too. One of these people is like... Drinking Diet Coke all day and working all day, like hours and hours and hours until, until the moment he dies. Ruling his various fashion houses with an iron fist, his whim could be fickle. Um, going back to that New Yorker profile from Giancola Pinto from 2007, uh, a person, 
quote, who travels in Lagerfeld circle but is not an intimate friend, unquote, uh, says, quote, it would be too frightening to start going inside that kingdom, the court, and all the liaisons dangereuses. It's like Louis the Fourteenth. end quote. <laughs> um, everyone in the entourage apparently knew stories of former favorites who were kicked away because they had begun to bore him because they betrayed him. This made Colapinto wrote for, quote, an anxious atmosphere. Uh, describing a dinner, uh, Colomb Pringle, the editor of French Vogue from 1987 to 1994, who has known Lagerfeld for more than 30 years, strained in her seat to see the head table where his and the princess's chairs sat empty. Turning back to her table mates, she said, it's opera. They're building something. So everyone's wondering, why isn't he here? It's 10 p.m. She laughed. Carl is on stage. When Pringle was asked if she considered herself a friend of Lagerfeld's, she frowned. You can never say you're a friend of Carl's. He can only say that about you. She lit a cigarette. <laughs> He's a diva, end quote. <laughs> but despite all of this diva behavior, he's always a workaholic. Um, he's always up in the morning. He's always creating more. He's always responsive to the demands of the market. Like, he's never someone whose behavior gets in the way of, like, endless, endless, endless productivity. Well, in some ways, it probably helps. You know, it helps the, the brand. Of course. After Debachet's death, Lagerfeld also began to gain weight. And I'm quoting here now from a piece by the satirist David Rakoff, who went in the early, late 90s, rather, to Paris Fashion Week and described Lagerfeld then in what is a cruel but admittedly funny piece of caricature. This is a quote from a David Rakoff essay from the book Don't Get Too Comfortable. Quote, all of the designers I have met up until this point have been very nice, although upon being introduced to Karl Lagerfeld, he looks me up and down and dismisses me with the not-super-kind, what could you write that hasn't been written already? He's absolutely right. I have no idea, but I can try. The only thing I can come up with right now is that Lagerfeld's powdered white ponytail has dusted the shoulders of his suit with what looks like dandruff but isn't. Seated on a tiny velvet chair, with his large doughy rump dominating the miniature piece of furniture like a loose, flabby, ass-flavored muffin overrisen from its pan, he resembles a domier caricature of some corpulent, overfed, inhumane oligarch drawn sitting on a commode, stuffing his greedy throat with the corpses of dead children, while from the other end he shits out huge, malodorous piles of tainted money. How's that for new and groundbreaking, Mr. L? End quote. <laughs> Yeah, that's, uh, that's evocative. <laughs> it is. Lagerfeld would eventually decide to undergo dramatic weight loss, and this was weight loss that he insisted was not done for health reasons, but because he wanted to wear Hedy Slimane's new slim-cut men's jeans. And so in fall of 2000, he went to a doctor and began a restrictive 1,200-calorie-a-day diet, recommended daily intake is 2,000, and he lost uh, 92 pounds in a year. And also, if you're a workaholic, I mean, you must be ready. Yeah. He yeah. lost 92 pounds in a year, which is crazy, and kept it off. How he much said is 92 pounds? 92 pounds is it's like uh, 45 kilos. 45 kilos or something. <sighs> he said, quote, I eat next to nothing to the, to the New Yorker. Um, during a conversation in the, with the New Yorker profiler, the profiler describes him being wordlessly brought a foil envelope of protein powder by a servant on a silver platter, which he sprinkles with some water and eats with a silver spoon and hands back, and that's dinner. Jesus. Uh, he switches from Coca-Cola to Diet Coke, and he drank dozens a day. No bread, no pasta, no cheese, no red meat. And in 2002, he it's published... no way to live. In, no 2000, in 2002, he publishes with his diet doctor the best-selling book, The Karl Lagerfeld Diet. <laughs> uh, to quote from the book, quote, There is nothing worse than looking longingly at clothes that you would like to wear but that are definitely too tight for you. It has to be a sort of punishment. 
You are a general and you have a single soldier in your army. You must give him instructions and he must carry them out. It may annoy him, but he has no choice, end quote. I can think of something worse than looking at clothes I don't fit into, which is a life without eating pasta. <laughs> I mean, the diet book um, does include some recipes, and these are recipes that hopefully will help out the many working people who are seeking to improve their health. Recipes including roast guinea fowl and quail flambe. Oh, that sounds nice. Yeah. And if you want to um, hear more about the Karl Lagerfeld diet, there's a really funny episode of the podcast Maintenance Phase where they read the book and talk about it, and it's very, very <laughs> funny if you want to go there. Um and so this dramatic weight loss coincides with his final phase of kind of total media celebrity. Um, and this is the sort of high starched collar, lots of jewelry figure that you see when you close your eyes and you think Karl Lagerfeld. Mm -hmm. In 2004, he did a diffusion line with H&M. It sold out in two days. And he became a global celebrity. And his every statement was sort of breathlessly reported on in the press. So let's return to those statements. On Me Too, quote, I'm fed up with it. What shocks me the most in all of this are the starlets who have taken 20 years to remember what happened. Quote, you've got fat mothers with their bags of chips sitting in front of the television and saying that thin models are ugly. I love how, how mother is uh, an insult in that. Yes. Quote, one cannot, even if there are decades between them, kill millions of Jews so you can bring millions of their worst enemies in their place. End quote. Heidi Klum, too heavy. Pippa Middleton, she should only show her back. Coco Chanel, not ugly enough to be a feminist. These are not great truths or funny jokes or daring statements that speak truth to power, but the banal opinions of a banal person born into immense privilege in Nazi Germany, who spent his life making himself and some already wealthy people even wealthier. Unlike many other fashion designers, he did this without making much of a mark on the way clothes appear or were constructed. Instead, his intelligence was in anticipating trends, in designing for the precise moment, in figuring out what wealthy women wanted to wear and what products middle-class women could be convinced to buy. He kept up his madcap schedule until his health began to fail in January of 2019. In February of that year, he was admitted to hospital where he died. He refused a funeral. He had his ashes scattered near the grave of Jacques de Bachet, and he left more than 1 million euros to his cat, Choupette. He has 263,000 followers on Instagram, and the most recent photograph of her there, as, as of this recording, shows her flying in a private jet. Oh, God. <laughs> well... I don't know, you've humanized him at the end there, because I'd give a million pounds to Fauno. Fauno. Fauno's much cuter than Choupette. You're listening to Bad Gaze, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people in history. And we'd just like to take a moment to thank all our supporters over on Patreon. Yeah, it wouldn't be possible without you. And that's why we now have for Patreon supporters and Apple Podcast subscribers, a new monthly podcast called Extra Bad Gaze. And that's where we have more informal but still informed conversations about hot topics, um, current issues, current events, current culture. Uh, but we do it with that same analysis that makes the show. So uh, this last month, we just talked about this new gay fire island nightmare community that they want to build in the Mediterranean. Um, but it ended up becoming a much deeper conversation about the history of gentrification, about uh, gay men's complicity in it, about how it affects queer communities. Um, and that's the kind of analysis you can, ex you can expect from the show, along with, um, you know, episodes about diva down George Santos and our favorite and least favorite gay Christmas movies. And if you still feel like you haven't had your fill of bad gays, why not check out our book, which is available now, Bad Gays of Homosexual History in hardback or paperback. And it's also now available in Italian translation and coming soon in Thai and in Spanish. 
And that's at badgazepod.com slash book. And our Patreon is patreon.com slash badgazepod, or click subscribe in Apple Podcasts. Back to the show. Uh, well, thanks, Ben. That's um, that's fascinating and, um, in retrospect, really quite tragic life, I think. It is, yeah. Um, it's a very, like, old-school kind of gay, right? This kind of, like, sublimated, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so I've got a few questions I want to ask. Um, first of all, he, from what you've described, I don't know anything really about fashion um, as my uh, socks and sandals combo today <laughs> will attest. But... Um, he was talented, right? Like, 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 like fashion is not just about creating the looks, but it is a business. And of to, course. to, you know, he pushed it in the direction of business and enterprise and, you know, what sells matters, but that is itself like, you know, it's called fashion. It's not called clothing. Right. And it's called, it's not called your fiber art or textile art. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And he's also, also clearly a talented I mean, some people have the kind of mind where you can think about how clothes are constructed, right? And he just clearly did, right? He's good at sketching. He's good at figuring out how to put things together in a different way. And what he's really good at is figuring out how to do 10 shows a year and think of something else to put down the runway. I mean, how many kinds of dresses can there possibly be? And yet you have to put 10 shows down a year. Obviously, not only dresses, there's also trousers and tops and whatever but like still it's it's a kind of astonishing workload to think of just like how do you think of all this stuff and he could do it he did do it he's a sort of huge um machine of references and of i mean in a way he kind of prefigures a style of creation that exists now a lot in the age of the internet right like the whole the kind of way that people have these um archives of um we all now have access to these kinds of endless archives of knowledge and of images and so style kind of moves in this very rapid pace as people kind of regurgitate and think through again right like you know Mm. this sort of complaint that music doesn't sound new anymore right fashion is not new anymore right everything is like everything is kind of doing the 70s doing the 30s doing the 20s all sort of regurgitated Um, but that way of approaching creativity was, I mean, he's one of the first people I can think of to kind of do it and to set it up for himself, kind of prefiguring that by creating, I mean, what is five rooms completely covered in music, books, and papers, if not the internet? Yeah. That's sort of physically mapped, right? Yeah. Um, and then he also figures out, yeah, how do you sell a lot of clothes to people, which is an intelligence. I mean, he made a lot of money for Chanel, and he made a lot of money for Fendi, and he made a lot of money for the investors in his own label. Yeah, he reminds me a lot, in fact, of um, Andy Warhol. Yes. And uh, Andy Warhol, you know, he has this quote, I almost quote it, but it's something along the lines of, you know, art is business and business is the best art or something like this. Yeah. And and yes, it's true. And he completely revolutionized and became obsessed with the business of selling art. But he couldn't have done it if he wasn't actually a very good artist, if he didn't understand art and how to make art and what art did and just the, the the aesthetics of how to produce like interesting compelling artwork and it seems the same way like he, he Lagerfeld completely changed the the game but he, the only way he could do that was by actually understanding and being proficient at the game in the first place so he actually knew Warhol um he uh there's a W magazine article referring to him as fashion's Andy Warhol 
Um, yeah. He was in a couple Warhol movies in the 70s. Okay, yeah. Um, and he very much... Um, I think that would be something you'd be very happy to hear. I think he really related to Warhol's practice, and I think it is a very like good comparison. And in the same way that like Warhol is kind of the worst possible artist for someone who is really invested in ideas about uh, craft in art, right? Yeah. Right, which is a perspective that I have to admit appeals to me a lot. That's my reactionary streak. Oh, well, then then Lagerfeld, just like Warhol is sort of ultimately horrifying to those people, right? Lagerfeld is ultimately horrifying to people whose ideal of fashion is a kind of transportative elegance, right? Or something that's really like beautiful and lovely and gorgeously crafted and beautifully made. But I know I'm going to kind of going to disagree with you on that because uh, Warhol Warhol is probably the antithesis of, uh, of 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 what it is for someone who believes that art in art as having some sort of truth or or, or meaning. Yes, but but not craft. Like that's what I mean. Is that is that the things that uh, he made? He understood the craft of making them. You know, you can you can have the ideas that Warhol had around art, but unless it's also something that people you know, do engage with as art, you know, the, the, the business becomes part of the art, but people still need to like want it as art. And it's the same thing with, with Lagerfeld, right? Like people, you, you can be as provocative and revolutionary in the business of, of fashion, but fundamentally it does have to be something that people want to wear and for it to be profitable. Yes. And I, so I guess then maybe it's, if you think that art has truth or beauty, right? It's the same as thinking that fashion should have elegance, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the horror um, that's the horror that kind of comes up. And I'll admit um, that, and again, to go back to my hopefully endearing reactionary streak, uh, that I kind of do like art to have truth and fashion to have elegance. But that's just me. Yeah. Uh, I certainly don't think that either of those things are moral values. Uh, like, I'm perfectly happy to discuss them as aesthetic preferences, but they are aesthetic preferences. And that's why, like, when I look through these archives of Lagerfeld's work, um, there's nothing that I look at and think, wow. Yeah. And I am someone who every once in a while, and I am wearing a scruffy T-shirt with the logo of your boyfriend's gallery on it. But you know, it's not like I'm someone who walks around every day in some kind of with some kind of impeccable dress sense. But I am someone who will occasionally like scroll through the pictures of a fashion show or like look at. I mean, it's like interesting. It's like interesting yeah. to look at in the way that anything else can be interesting to look at. And I never find find or found Lagerfeld stuff particularly interesting to look at. I just think it's very like. It's always extremely of its moment. There's hmm. something very crass about it. There's something very ugly often about it. Um, but not even in a way that's like Prada can be ugly in an interesting way. Just very like banal. It's like, yeah. Yeah. But then, yeah, you're not the, the, the market. I'm not the our target audience. No, I'm not. I'm not going to buy a Chanel suit <laughs> as okay. much as everyone wants to see me in one. Onto, onto more like the issue of bad, I guess. Um, like, because the, the quotes you had are obviously like... <laughs> fucking appalling and yeah. just like just like also like dumb oh, he put models in blackface and yellow face yeah also, just like dumb like offensive just, you know, like just like like cruel yeah, and mean etc yeah. etc et but some some there's obviously one thing that sticks out which is which is perhaps like well a it's interesting because uh because he was fat at one point b it's interesting because i think uh, like its relationship with fashion and especially the fashion industry and women and c like to do with his homosexuality so yeah i guess i'm kind of interested in this model of the uh sort of misogynist and often fat phobic 
model of a certain type of gay man who works in fashion for whom women are like you know loves women but actually is cruel etc cetera, etc cetera. and right. like it's a stereotype but i think it's a stereotype which has some sort of i love like, women like liza minnelli and <laughs> no not even like that just like oh i love women they're so elegant blah blah blah. but then isn't very cruel you know so they don't yeah. love women women are sort of dolls for their their, their clothes Barbie and, dolls. yeah and to the degree to which they can they can sort of get away with that in popular culture um up until relatively recently i think because of the gay the gay becomes like a pass you know for for this like misogynistic way of treating women and especially of uh, talking about women and their body image. Absolutely. I mean, and I think if you think about this kind of very gay, complicated relationship with mommy, right? Nothing is gayer than mommy issues. Then the fact that his mother is someone who kind of gives him this very quick wit, but also this habit of just saying extremely cruel things like hmm. never smoke because your hands are ugly. And if you smoke, people will be looking at your ugly hands. Can you imagine yeah. your mother saying that to you? Um, like it, it just, you know, it, it starts to make sense that there's this kind of ideal of womanhood that is extremely hard and thin and cruel. Um, and that the moral value that he sees in well no there isn't a moral value the value that he sees in thinness is aesthetic right his repulsion is fundamentally aesthetic there's all of these excuses that he makes and it's interesting where his own weight loss he's extremely adamant that it had nothing to do with health my health was fine it wasn't yeah. this it wasn't that i just wanted to fit in the size 28 jeans but he all of the in, in the public comments about women and weight there's all of this kind of justification with health and the social system and all of this stuff, like all of the kind of classic um, are justifications and arguments that get made around anti-fat bias, right? Yeah, yeah. But really, the objection is aesthetic. And really, like, I think the, 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 one, the quote that says it all is no one wants to look at curvy women. Yeah. Which is not true, right? But yeah, that's also the interesting thing. I don't thing. want to look at curvy women. That's also like the interesting conversation, I guess, to be had around like gay men dictating a lot of the sort of ideals through the fashion industry is um, like he doesn't want to look at curvy women, but it's not related to sexual desirability as it exists right. in a real and for world. Example, and that's what's interesting, I think, with the comment about Heidi Klum, right? When he says Heidi Klum is too fat and busty to be a runway model. Um I bet you that Heidi Klum is probably m closer to or, or more a more kind of mass acceptable um, object of heterosexual desire than a lot of the thinner runway models that he was showing clothes on. Yeah. And which isn't to say that either one of them looks right or wrong. Um, and you know, these are both obviously extremely thin and extremely conventionally attractive types of women that we're talking about here. But like, even within that distinction, he's not really prosecuting desirability at something else. Yeah. Yeah. As, as, the kind as of aesthetic, aesthetic ideal. Thing. But I think also like this, is what I was talking about, like this idea of like gay men perceiving women in certain types of gay men in perceiving women as sort of dolls and claiming to adore these the women, but actually instrumentalizing them is that he says, no one wants to look at fat women, but like that the role of women is to be looked at. Who cares whether people, what people, what, what this guy wants to look at or not? That's not exactly what right. Yeah, about. Women are actually people, yeah, yeah. right? Which apparently doesn't occur to him. Yeah. So, um, uh, but uh, I guess, yeah, like he's, it's interesting to see that, and, and 
should be, I think, clarifying to see that that attitude towards women, both women who he thinks are desirable or, or aesthetically pleasing and women who he thinks are repulsive, that sort of framework, the way he sees the world, fits in with also his like racism and uh, anti-Semitism and uh, all these other sort of like, you know, he's this, this is this is uh, in a universe of bigotry and should be understood as that. Oh, of course. And that's why I wanted to say, that's why I started by saying that it's, you know, these are kind of the banal prejudices of a kind of banal person. Like, I think it's really easy when someone has a, when someone has a um, track record of uh, saying kind of outrageous things in public, um, we often give them far too much credit for being these kinds of great wits. Yeah, or a provocateur. But like, if he if he wasn't wearing a sort of a powdered pompadour and, uh, and, little necktie but he was instead you know wearing god forbid his um his jogging pants and sitting on tv as a sitting in front of the tv as a straight man and was saying these things you would pin it instantly for what it was which is just straight up bigotry or imagine if donald trump said it yeah right okay well uh the final question um Good gay, bad gay. I mean, I know what you're going to say here. I mean, good not gay, gay, bad not gay. Right. You know, there's the great, um, the great Margaret Cho bit about uh, Karl Lagerfeld that he's such a faggot that he has a fan because he has to constantly carry around a fan to fan the flames of his faggotry. Um, And I'd say pretty bad. Um, I mean, also tragic. um, And also someone who I think has a really, like, complex relationship to to himself. Someone who. You know, this his biographer who wrote Paradise Now is sort of constantly talking about how he's misremembered and he had this really tender heart and I'm sure he did to the people who knew him and loved him, but um, Yeah, his impact on the world was not that. I would say not that. So if people want to know more about Karl Lagerfeld, what are some of the sources you used for for this episode? Well there's that biography. Um and then this is one of these episodes where there's just a kind of dizzying array of of um different articles. I'll name a couple of them, one of them being that that um New Yorker profile by John Colapinto. Um, and one of them being the um, an article in in um, ID magazine um, about uh, Jacques de Bachet. But all of this is uh, linked in the show notes. Um, the one thing that I will say, just a brief note about Daniel Harrison, his essay of the Electronic Funeral Morning Versace, which is also linked. Um, this is an essay he wrote in 1998 for the Antioch Review. He's written a lot of essays for the Antioch Review since, including a recent one that is just inexcusably violently and disgustingly transphobic. Um, and so while I have a lot of snaps for the way that he writes there about the fashion industry, I just want to kind of give people a little bit of a warning if they say, oh, gee, I wonder what else Daniel Harris wrote to just, um, yeah. Yeah. Hey, thanks for that. Yeah. Well, thanks for a great start to uh, to season seven, uh, a fascinating, tragic life. Um, my name's Hugh Lemmy. I'm a, a writer and author. And if you want to read more from me, um, you can find my newsletter, hugh.substack.com. That's H-U-W, Hugh. And I am at Ben Writes Things on the social media and at benwritesthings.com. Thanks so much. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bad. Bad, 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 bad,